You know that feeling of gentle contentment, that calm and present energy that materializes when you know in every miraculous cell of your body that you can trust yourself completely? Well, I've never felt that once in my whole fucking life. You'll have to tell me what it's like sometime. Maybe you feel great just the way you are. I'm happy for you, truly. Maybe you got that way from mindfulness or cupping your hands around a ceramic mug of ginger tea while slowly breathing in salty air and listening to the swell of the sea. Or from not being Catholic. Or from bullet journaling on your lunch break. This book isn't about finding yourself. I'm sorry if that's the kind of beach read you are after. It's about having found yourself and then strategizing with all the solemn concern of a mustachioed World War I battle captain, ways to make the self more palatable to other humans. Onwards, men, you say, except to your own brain. It's about wishing you could call Renovation Rescue on your personality, except you can't because Scott Cam would just turn up with his Philip Head screwdriver like, uh, what can I even do here? And in any case, that show ended in 2006. It's about that time in 1999 when my classmate Fran made a burn book about every girl in our class and in between calling one girl a slut, she had boobs and another boring, she was. She accused me of being a tryhard. It's only because you try so hard at everything you do, said my popular sort of friend Anna Grace tactfully. The other girls nodded sympathetically. Anna Grace was lying. This book is about tryhards. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Heather Lewis, and today we're joined by writer and media critic Sinead Stubbins, talking about her debut book, In My Defense, I Have No Defense, a collection of humorous essays which explore the seemingly impossible task of achieving self-perfection. Sinead, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So your book is about the seemingly impossible standards of self-improvement and becoming your best self. What inspired you to write about that? Well, I started this project just um, with the idea that I wanted to write see what happened when I was just writing for myself. I'd actually never written for myself as an adult. I'd always, since I was 18, been pitching to publications and was lucky enough to write for a lot of, well, a lot of them. But I didn't know what would come out without the constraints of a publication's mm. tone style guide. And I was really curious to find out. And as soon as I started writing down interesting conversations or funny things that I'd seen, I realized that there was a theme to all of the things that I was writing. And those were ideas of shame and identity and this idea of performing the self and what happens when that performance doesn't go as well as you want it to. It was pretty clear um, very early on that what I was interested in was this idea of feeling like you're not enough and wanting to make a more lovable and better version of yourself. As you said, you've written a lot for online publications and whatnot, and that's obviously quite different to writing an entire book. As you went along with writing your debut and it sort of came together, what was the experience of writing it like? Yeah, when people say that writing a book is hard, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> people aren't lying about that. I think it was very liberating. I'd always thought in terms of ideas that would suit particular publications, and when I was free of, of those limitations... It was kind of interesting to see 
what I naturally gravitated towards and the forms I naturally gravitated towards. But I think I did really miss having an editor to feedback to me if what I was doing was actually good Mm. (laughs) and to put me on the right track. And I think especially in memoir, I think everyone would have this fear that, oh, is, is what I'm writing actually relevant? Am I just rambling and, and telling stories that don't really have any universal kind of resonance? So I was so grateful that halfway through the process I actually got an agent in Danielle Binks and so I was able to talk to her about the things that I was thinking about and use her as a sounding board because it can be quite a lonely process, I think, yeah. much more than um, journalism or criticism Um because you kind of do have that editor kind of guiding you along the way. So, yeah, I was surprised by how isolating the experience was, but I think it also made room for ideas that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I guess what was the experience going back to the more embarrassing times of your life, especially (laughs) in adolescence? Well, I've got this sort of brain that kind of has a, you know, a, a Ferris wheel of every terrible thing that I've ever done in my head. (laughs) It sort of um, goes through my brain when I have a shower, when I'm waiting for a coffee. I think a lot of us do. Yes, sleep at Mm 3am. So accessing that wasn't a huge problem. It was more, okay, so this embarrassing thing happened to me, but is it a good story? Is it related to anything? Like I didn't want this to just be a collection of here's a terrible thing I did or here's a terrible thing that was done to me. I I wanted them to be entertaining stories. And if I was writing something and I thought, okay, but what is this about? It has to be about something that's bigger than what I'm writing down. And if I couldn't connect it to something bigger, then I sort of got rid of it. And in terms of the book's tone, did you look towards any writers or particular books for inspiration in terms of keeping a sort of funny, but also, I guess, kind of educational tone? I think educational is wildly generous. Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I mean, I tried not to read too much funny nonfiction while I was writing the book because I always have this fear that I'm going to subconsciously steal someone's joke. <laughs> That's always just been my thing. But um, previous to that, I loved writers like Samantha Irby and Sloane Crosley and Jenny Lawson and Nora Ephron, may she rest in peace. I loved the way that they were able to write about the personal in such a compelling and hilarious way that it didn't feel self-indulgent because it connected to something bigger than themselves. And even though they were talking about frivolous ideas, potentially like a haircut or a pastry that they tasted once 30 years ago and could never find again, you wanted to spend time in their world. And I think creating a book like that, that was really important to me. The book is quite self-deprecating and relaying some of the embarrassing experiences of your life. And that tone can be relatable for younger generations in small bursts, but it can also be a little bit grating if it's not done properly. How did you go about trying to strike that balance? Which I did think you achieved, but how did you oh. do that? <laughs> well, I'm glad that you said that because that's absolutely a fear of mine that I did yeah. not. Yeah, I think it was really important to me going into this that I didn't make myself the butt of every joke just for the sake of it because you know we've all read books like that or seen tv shows like that where it's sort of the protagonist girl who's always tripping over and falling in puddles and I didn't want it to be like that yeah but also it it, it, conversely I think because I was scared of being too self-deprecating and being sort of cloying and annoying 
I sometimes found myself apologizing in the book and saying, oh, sorry, I know this is an annoying story. Oh, sorry. And I had to take a lot of that out because I had to sort of sit with it. No, it's okay. You, You can exist. It's all right. People might not like this book and that's okay, but it's allowed to exist. And I think there was a little bit of internalized misogyny there as well, to be honest, because I think often with male humor writers, they are allowed to talk about the small gripes in their lives and it's kind of described as like, oh, they've just summed this up and what a yeah. razor sharp. They're just it. neurotic <laughs> or something. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, yeah, I should say straight white men are yeah. considered like that. And everybody who's not that, if they write a personal story, it's sort of like, oh, how self-indulgent. Mm. And, how, you know. and so I was kind of trying to straddle that line of wanting it to be a, a, an interesting reading experience that wasn't lazy and didn't, rely on lazy tropes but also not tying myself up in knots for apologize apologizing for exhausting basically (laughs) well one of the interesting things of the book is that some of the essays utilize second person narration was that sort of your way to i guess make it a little bit self-indulgent while also trying to keep the reader in your shoes yeah that's uh, yeah that's an interesting (laughs) way (laughs) i mean you're probably right i think it, it honestly was as simple as if I had an idea, I would just write it the way I was thinking about it in my head without any of a consistent style or tone because I'd never had the freedom to do that before. If I was writing something and I thought, oh, no, this would be better in second person or this would be better as a list or this would be, I I just changed it on a whim. Um, And I actually did that quite a bit before publication as well. I changed things around and um, the order of things so it, it was basically just the freedom of doing whatever I wanted it, it, there was no plan <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's what I'm saying another interesting feature of the book that sort of um, breaks up the larger autobiographical pieces are these sort of listicles I guess for lack of a better word about about different kinds of media w- what was your thinking behind including those um, well I definitely made my bones on the internet writing listicles <laughs> That's something that I um, did for many years. And it's funny that we use the word listicles now to kind of dismiss something, yeah. writing when, yeah, when it's like, well, actually, sometimes listicles had some really good writing. And, mm. and listicles have been around for a long time, since before BuzzFeed. 100%. And also some of my favourite websites on the internet, like The Toast, which doesn't exist anymore, kind of were known for these bite-sized pieces of wonderful satire and mixed ones now do it. Um, And so I kind of, it was like reclaiming that back for myself and, you know, putting it in a book is kind of extremely permanent. So it was kind of justice for the listicle there. (laughs) Were there any funny experiences or anecdotes that didn't make it into the book for one reason or another? I definitely took a lot out initially that kind of I was fine writing anything about myself but there were times where I was thinking oh maybe I shouldn't write that about another person that's probably not fair and I kind of wanted to make sure I still had loved ones after the book got published (laughs) I would take that out sometimes but the biggest one I took out was so I was pitching this book um mid last year and one of the stories I'd written pretty early on was about the time I faked a coughing fit to get out of a conversation, which was a terrible, deplorable thing to do. But in the age of COVID, 
also could potentially send me to jail. So (laughs) I cut that out because it, you know, midway through last year, that just didn't seem like a fun story. So that was the one that I'm glad that I cut out. (laughs) Can I ask what was so bad about the conversation that you had to fake a coughing fit? (laughs) Yeah. The thing is, it wasn't even that bad. It was just that I had bumped into someone that I had studied with And he had a big, important journalism job and was doing all these amazing things. And I also had a job that I was proud of at the time, but primarily what I was writing were captions of photos of fashion shoots and just like where that bag came from, which was a job that was fine for me. But I could tell as I was explaining my job to him, he looked at me like I was, you know, an orphan in a Charles Dickens novel, like, <laughs> that I be rescued. And so my body just went into this weird response and I started coughing. It's very strange. I, I understand that, honestly. <laughs> From your perspective, and especially after writing the book, where do you think this pressure to become the best version of ourselves comes from? And why is it so difficult to live up to it? pressure can come from a lot of places and it's different for different people. Um, I know that if I was a teenager or someone in their early 20s growing up now, that pressure would have come from social media. I feel like I was lucky enough to dodge that. I only had MySpace and MSN Messenger, which makes me sound like an ancient being. But anyway, fantastic. You know, you know the vibes. But a lot of, in my case, and I think I only really realised this while writing the book, a lot of that pressure was internal and mm. this standard that I set for myself and all this internalised shame about who I was actually meant to be. And it was kind of an interesting process because I had to make peace with the fact that there is always going to be an imperfect version of myself and I have to trust that that's enough, that that's enough of a friend or enough of a daughter or a partner because I accept that in other people. So it's about accepting the imperfect version of myself. Can you tell I go to therapy? <laughs> It's <laughs> good. We should all be going to therapy. That's true. Well, I guess in, that, in a similar vein to that question, do you have any advice for somebody who feels like they're struggling to achieve perfection or to better themselves? <laughs> well, apart from everyone should go to therapy, which I do think is important. Get, get your 10 mental health sessions from Medicare. I think it's A lot of the pressure comes from comparing yourself to other people and standards that you think exist for everyone, but they actually don't. And the thing is, you could be seeing someone who you perceive to be killing it in every field, who knows what to do for their career, always seems to be able to say the right thing, you know, gets really good haircuts. (laughs) Hmm. But you don't know... We never really know someone else's life. You don't know what happens at home. You don't know what's happening inside of them. I think it's a lot of trying to shut out everybody else's expectations and really nail down what you want, which can be really hard. Like it's a a hard thing to figure out who you want to be without other people clouding your idea of what you should be. Like it sounds easy, but it's, it's, I think comparison to other people and what other people think of our choices informs so much of what we do, way more than it should. <laughs> well, Sinead, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was great. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.